Welcome to the Drink Less, Live More podcast. If you are a woman that is wanting to evaluate your relationship with alcohol, you come to the right place. There are no hard and fast rules and you don't have to call yourself anything. You're just a woman that knows something isn't working for her and you are wanting to make an intentional change. I'm Rachel Pritz and I'll walk alongside you as you learn to drink less and live more. Let's go. Welcome back. In this episode, we're talking about the very light and airy topic of healing your inner child. <laughs> uh, I know this sounds deep. Quite frankly, when I talk about this with women, especially on an individual basis, there isn't a single woman, I don't know, over the age of 30 that doesn't kind of get teary eyed when they think about this. You know, um, I think that men have their own, you know, subset of inner child and the ways that they're socialized, uh, that are damaging to them. There is no doubt about it. Obviously my experience is how I've been socialized and even just how I was raised, um, as a woman. And so, and as a girl in society, especially in the space and time that I was, you know, sort of coming, um, into womanhood and all those things. There was just a lot going on culturally Culturally, that I really think was pretty damaging for many of us. That's probably going to be true forever because I'm hopeful that we just continue to evolve as a society. So I'm guessing my kids will be saying something similar. I hope that I'm breaking a bit of that cycle so it's not quite as challenging for them. But, you know, as women, I think we just really get um, kind of beat down. You know, we're told we can do all the things and, you know, we can have the career, we can have the family and we can do all that stuff. But we are expected to work like we don't have kids and we're expected to parent like we don't work. And there's only one of us. So it's impossible. I mean, it can feel like an impossible standard that we're trying to reach, uh, that just doesn't exist. Like it's not, it's not something we can get to. So I'm bringing this up because I do think this was a huge part of my own personal journey. When I first took a break from alcohol, my long extended break back in November of 2020, I started to feel some of these things come up and quite frankly, the wine had numbed a lot of it, which is part of the reason why I was drinking the wine. So Stick with me here on why I think this is really important for us to do as women, just to, to kind of heal our inner selves and be our own healer. You know, I mean, I think we often expect other people to be the, the healers. We expect our parents to swoop in and suddenly fix everything um, or, you know, do all the right things now that they didn't do before. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's, you know, that's not going to really, um, really be the healing, uh, you know, journey that we need as individuals. Our partners can't heal us. Our kids can't heal us. You know, nobody can really heal us, but us. And so there's something that's really empowering about that. As a 41 year old woman, I think I have all the responsibility to heal myself. I really do. I don't think it's someone else's responsibility. So, um, so we'll talk through some of that too. So it doesn't mean that I'm not, um, here to connect with other human beings and to lean on them. We'll talk about my own inner, um, child or inner wound that I had experienced as a kid that really carried through adulthood. And it was all about being alone. It was all about take care of yourself. Don't, uh, don't you dare be a pain in the ass or ask for too much or be needy. I mean, for God's sake, don't you ever be needy. 
Um, and I don't, you know, my parents didn't say that directly to me, but that was certainly perceived uh, just through, you know, even how I was punished as a kid, you know? So we'll talk through some of that. So I do think it's our responsibility to do this healing. Most of us probably have at our disposal some ways to help us with this. And so it is a tough thing to do on your own. I think if you have a tribe of women or you have that, you know, go-to bestie or a sister or, you know, somebody that's really close to you that you can lean on, uh, that's really helpful. I think this is really hard to do completely alone. I think it's really helpful to have somebody else there. I mean, I pay for help. So I pay for therapy and coaching to help me through some of this and the, um, to have helped, you know, they've really helped heal me over the last seven or eight years when I realized like something is really wrong here. I shouldn't be driving into work, um, hoping to get into a car accident so I could have a break. That is not why I think I was put on this earth. That was never the storyline when I was playing with my Barbies as a kid, Oh, Barbie's going into work and she hopes to get in a car accident because she's so overwhelmed and needs a break. Like, what a joke. I mean, that's not why I believe that we were put here on this planet. And so we have to do this healing work in order to be able to give the world what we have to offer. If you are a parent, I think there's no better thing for us to do than to heal ourselves. If we heal ourselves, that will automatically trickle down into our kids Um, And so I think that's the best possible thing we can do. You know, people will ask me, especially through the Enneagram, which I'm going to talk about a bit today, how do I not screw my kids up and how do I avoid all of this stuff, you know? And I'm like, look, don't worry about avoiding all these things with how you, you know, uh, approach your parenting style. Worry about healing yourself. If you heal yourself, like the work will be done for you. So I'm still on this journey and I'm still healing um, some of these things that happen to come up. Sometimes we don't know they're there until they happen to come up. So um, that was sort of my experience seven or eight years ago. I couldn't have articulated what was wrong, but something was wrong. And so over time, I started to figure out what it was that I had internalized as a child and carried through as a pattern of behavior in adulthood that was no longer working for me. So I'm actually going to use the Enneagram to just talk about the nine different, what we call kind of childhood messages or childhood wounds that each particular type got. So even if you don't know the Enneagram or don't know which type you are, there's probably going to be one or or a couple of these that really hit home for you where you're like, oh yes, I feel that like, like truly the wound is starting to being, to be opened back up by just hearing that. So if you're unfamiliar with the Enneagram or your type, that could be pointing you in the right direction if you're curious. Um, I also do one-on-one sessions with people on the Enneagram. So uh, it's a, uh, one of my favorite things to do is to kind of help, number one, explain the Enneagram, um, help people understand how to use it, but then also just to help uh, help them through my guidebook to be able to navigate this journey. This is a huge part of healing my inner child and just my own personal healing. And like I said, totally connected with the alcohol use because I wanted to run so far away from all this stuff because it was hard. Healing is not easy. It's why most of us avoid it like the plague. And I see so many women use wine to avoid it, right? Because you can check out of all of it. When I first took my, my extended break, I was experiencing really kind of just darker or painful emotions. I don't know if I would call them dark, but painful emotions And 
it would have been easy to go back to the wine. It would have been easy to grab the wine and say, I'm going to get rid of this, but I had to address it. And I had to learn how to feel it, to be honest. I'd, I'd never really experienced that. I like to only focus on the positive. I sort of reframe everything to the positive. And so I'd never really had to just sit with the fact that I am angry or I am disappointed or I am sad or I am grieving I'd never really had to do that. The grief part of it is deep. I have experienced that, but the first time I experienced it was seven years ago in my life. Like I'd never really lost anyone or anything that felt like this type of loss. So with the loss of my daughter to stillbirth, I had to learn how to grieve. And I'm still grieving that. I will never stop grieving that. So anybody that tells you that grief is linear is full of shit Actually, you know, the stages of grief were never meant to be linear, but they were sort of, a, a, you know, put out into the public that way, but that's not actually how they were designed. Uh, it's never over. I truly believe that grief is never over. I will, um, I will grieve the loss of my daughter till the day I die. Um, it just looks different over time. So, so anyway, um, like I said, light and airy topic of, you know, inner child and wounds and dark emotions and all the fun stuff. Um, but I'll try to keep it, you know, somewhat just, you know, factual. We're going to talk through some of this and just um, also, you know, connect it to the heart uh, because this is really um, deeply connected to our heart and we often just avoid that, that part of us. So the Enneagram ones, I'm going to go through all of the Enneagram types and what the childhood message was. So if you feel this pretty deeply, pay attention to that particular type. Um, and I always say these are real and perceived. So I think it's a combination of both. You may not have been told that directly, but it was sort of just the what you picked up in the environment you were in. Kids are amazing observers, so they can really pick up things um, and pick up maybe what the, they think the message is, and that's not actually the message. You may have had a teacher that told you this thing, and it wasn't even a parent. You may have had a grandparent or a good friend that told you know kind of told you these things, and so. Keep that in mind too, that gosh, if you're a parent, like let's not beat ourselves up here. Like we're, we're all doing our best. My parents did their best with what they had. So, um, okay. The childhood message for the type ones. So the type ones are the perfectionists. I prefer the word reformer. That's also another name for them. So I would call them reformers. The message that they got is that it's really just not okay to make mistakes. It's not okay to have errors. It's not okay to be, um, unethical, you really are striving as a one to be seen as a good girl or a good boy. Like that is like music two years if Sony pats you on the head and says, good girl. Oh, so good. Um, you do the right thing here, you know? Um, so it's just not okay to make mistakes. So, you know, failure is really, really, really hard for a one. Um, that's why that perfectionism piece comes in. When it comes to alcohol use, oh my gosh. I mean... Wow. I mean, you want to talk about a moral failing to, you know, be drinking alcohol, you know? So of course that's really hard for them. And the shame I think really sinks in for them um, sometimes more intensely because it's just not well received in our society to be a woman that over drinks and is, you know, sloppy and doesn't have her stuff together. So, um, so that can be really tough for the type ones. The type twos are called the helpers, sometimes called the advisors. And their childhood message is that it's not okay to have your own needs. I know a lot of type twos. And actually, as a nine, this one resonates for me, but there's some similarity, I think, between the two. But that it's not okay to have your own needs. 
Um, so you don't want to be seen as a needy person. Your whole goal is to just help other people. And then that's how you'll be loved, right? If you're, if you're helpful enough, then you are worthy of receiving love, but you can't possibly have your own needs because if you do that, then you're needy and, uh, people will not love you. That's kind of the belief system. So, so fascinating how these, you know, early, Childhood messages can really um, be carried through adulthood. You know, they wire us in a certain way and we don't even know we're doing this stuff. You know, it's kind of like it sounds almost silly on the surface that we would still believe that. Um, but we do, you know. So um, so for type twos, you know, they can really get exhausted with the help, 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 help. I have my I don't have my own needs. They kind of have a belief system they don't have their own needs, and that will um, typically catch up to them at some point. Okay, the type threes, oh gosh, the performers, sometimes called the achievers, um, their childhood message is that it's not okay to have feelings or your own identity. You need to put on the mask and be whatever you need to be in the environment, and that's how you're going to get love. But do not ever be who you really are. Um, and please don't show your feelings to us. Like we don't know, we, we can't care about those things. And so for a three, it is just all about achievement. And if they achieve enough, then they'll finally be worthy of love. And of course that gets exhausting. I work with a lot of threes in my coaching practice. Cause I do tend to work with a lot of high achievers. They've accomplished a lot of things in their careers and in their lives and they are go-getters and they're, you know, to-do list checkers and they truly do get a lot of shit done. Um, and they are, uh, usually embraced in the corporate culture model because it's kind of like the person that is the performer and the person that speaks up and the person that can put on the mask when they need to in whatever situation they need to. And so they do really tend to get promoted and thrive in, in the corporate culture model for sure. But they know that they're doing this. Like, they're not unaware of this. They know that they're putting their uh, mask on. They don't feel like they're being themselves. And that feels icky to them. And so oftentimes I find threes as big-time overdrinkers um, because that is just so intense. Like, they got to be on all the freaking time. And so when they finally get to have a break, um, they just want to relax and threes do not relax well. Like this is not something that naturally comes to them. And so when they can sit down and, and have a few drinks and sort of just get rid of that feeling of I've got to do, 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 um, that can feel really good to them. And so, um, you know, keeping, keeping that in mind that that is often why a three will run to, to alcohol. It is hard to be a three. I mean, it's hard work to keep that mask on and to be on at all, uh, times. And so sometimes at home, they're able to kind of take that mask off, um, and, and try to relax, but dang, is it hard? Like, it's so interesting because growth for a three is actually to look a little bit more like a nine. So being able to rest and relax um, that is not a problem for me. It's actually why I knew I wasn't a three as I started exploring the Enneagram. Um, cause I tested as a three and I was like, when they said like, they, you know, like the relaxed thing, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm fantastic at relaxing. <laughs> like if anything, I'm a little too relaxed sometimes, but I am so good at just being like not having to check a box or achieve or do any of that stuff. I just, I, I never have been achievement, uh, oriented or driven towards like, oh, I need to, you know, 
I need to do the next best, the next thing, right? Or I need to get the next promotion or I need to climb the ladder. Like I'd never have cared about that. I just, I just kind of want to be in, be left alone. Um, and obviously growth for me is to be a little more achieving. So, you know, there's all these opportunities within this thing. Okay. So type four, sometimes called the individualist or the creative. Um, I have a couple of type fours in my life that I'm very close to. And so I can see how this childhood message has been challenging for them, for sure. Um, the childhood message for um, for a type four is that it's just, it's not okay to be too different or free-spirited. Like, it's not okay to sort of, you know, be that outlier, that that person that's, that's different. Um, and they really just wanted that message of, you know what, we see you for who you are and we appreciate your difference, you know, in your, um, your uniqueness. So they're always kind of wanting to be unique and kind of stand out. Um, but then they also don't, you know, like it's so interesting. I find fours to be so fascinating because they're like, they're kind of always scanning the horizon for what they're missing and what everybody else has that they don't have. So really comparing themselves to other people, but then they want to be considered unique and different, you know? So it's so, it's so fascinating to me. Um, fours feel, you know, intense emotions. They are very emotionally attuned and they will feel a lot of darker emotions, especially when they're more in that average or unhealthy space. Um, you know, a healthy four still feels dark emotions. They just know how to sit with them and move on. Like it doesn't, it doesn't keep them stuck. Um, an average to an unhealthy type four would sometimes get stuck in would or not sometimes, but they, they do get stuck in those darker emotions and kind of sitting in those. And then they have everybody on the other, you know, on the outside world telling them to get out of those, like, stop it. Oh my gosh, you're so sad. Let's stop being so melancholy, you know? And it's like, yeah, like that's actually comfortable for them. And that also makes them feel like something's wrong with them, you know, cause they're able to sit in that space. So I find fours to be really beautiful people that have something that the rest of the world doesn't have actually. And the interesting thing is that they think that they don't have, you know, they, they're missing something. And I'm like, no, I think you actually have a gift. And um, we just have to figure out how to use it. So for fours, you know, abandonment is kind of a big deal. A lot of times they're abandoned with their emotions, you know, as a young child, like they're told to just be happy. Um, why are you crying? Oh, stop crying. What's wrong? You know, we immediately assume something's wrong when somebody is sitting in these darker emotions. And so we want to fix it because it's uncomfortable for us. So, um, I do often see a lot of fours struggle with, with over drinking, um, when they, when they don't, um, manage those, those kind of darker emotions and kind of allow for them, but then, um, they don't figure out the tools to be able to move past some of those darker emotions, you know, instead of sitting in them all day long. Um, okay. The type fives. So the thinkers sometimes called the observers, um, I find fives to be so interesting. They're just, they're so different than fours that I just described because they're like the opposite. Like they're just like, oh my gosh, I just, <laughs> um, yeah, I like they can't even like, they'll tell me they don't even have emotions. So like going into some of these dark emotions just isn't a thing. Um, but their unconscious message is like, it's not okay to, um, just be comfortable. Like you always have to be searching for, uh, more information, competency is a huge thing for type fives. And so, um, you know, they kind of just will also say they don't have any needs. Like, you know, like you, like having your own needs is a problem. So you solve all your own problems. You do it through competency. Um, yeah. So emotions are like, you don't have any, um, where I see fives get tripped up there is that they are humans. They have emotions 
and they just don't want to address them. You know, like they're probably never going to be the type of person that is just overly emotional and that's how they drive everything. Um, but it's helpful for them to understand their emotions and to understand that having needs is not a problem. It's okay to have some needs and to, to ask for, for help when they need it. Um, but most fives do not do that. They're also probably the most introverted type on the Enneagram. So they like to kind of be in isolation, um, which is not always healthy for us. Like we are pack animals. We are meant to be connected to one another. Um, doesn't mean it has to be 24 seven, but we are meant to be connected. Um, the sixes, the loyalists, um, sometimes called the guardians. I think both, both of those fit. Um, the childhood message that they received is that it's not okay to trust yourself. So they often do have some trust issues. They don't trust the external world. They're always looking for safety and security. Um, and they really, um, have also learned to not trust themselves, you know? So they like, they overthink, they analyze, they do all these things because gosh, God forbid, like you trust even your emotions or what your body's telling you, you know? So they get in their heads and really get stuck in analysis paralysis. So it's hard to be a six. They feel a lot of responsibility for all the things and fixing all the things around them. They'll often stay in work environments that are no longer healthy for them because they have a team that they don't want to let down. Or they, they don't want to let their organization down or whatever. So it's hard. I mean, it's hard to be a six for sure. There can be a lot of, uh, it can be an, an intense experience to be a six for sure. The type sevens, the enthusiast, or sometimes called the optimist, their childhood message is that it's not okay to depend on anyone. They are completely on their own. <laughs> um, and you know that there's a few of these types that have that, that message and gosh, like, like I said, we are pack animals. We're meant to lean on each other and to have that mindset of we are alone and nobody's coming to save us. We have to help ourselves. And to a degree, I think some of that is true. And then I also think in order to get there, we have to be able to lean on other people. So it's such a catch 22 with all of this work. Um, sevens, you know, are often the life of the party. And so I feel like they have that sort of expectation and sometimes they're like, I don't want to be the life of the party. I just want to like, just show up and not have to be the fun one or, you know, to be able to just like, yeah, not, not be, not be the fun one. Right. And not tell the jokes and not be the life of the party. So it's really interesting because I think they get a lot of energy from that for sure, but then it also can be exhausting. So, um, the type eight, so the challengers or sometimes called the protectors, which I really love that terminology. I actually think healthy eights are protectors. I think average eights are challengers. So, um, kind of the ones that can be bulldozers, but they can also be uh, somebody you want in your back pocket for sure um, because they'll do anything for you. Um, so their childhood message is that it's not okay to be vulnerable or to trust anyone. So they've often, you know, uh, realized early on um, that they need to be uh, older and more mature than maybe um, a kid needs to be at the age that they are and they're just not, you know, they're not able to, to feel vulnerable. And so they put up this really tough armor, um, in order to protect themselves. And then the trusting sixes and eights really do struggle with trust. Um, and so they don't really trust a lot of people. It's why they have a small inner circle typically. Um, and they kind of are always a little bit skeptical of what people are, you know, what their agenda is, like what's the hidden agenda. Sixes are the same way. Um, for our type nines, which is my type. And I mean, sometimes when I read this childhood wound, like I can get just teary eyed, um, because it is so true. So, um, the unconscious message for a uh, type nine is that it's not okay to assert yourself. 
So that also means it's not okay to ask for what you need. It's not okay to be the one that's the loudest in the room. Um, you know, I was told by a couple of different teachers on, um, on report cards that I talk too much. And so my parents didn't really tell me that, you know, like they I actually came from a pretty loud family. My mom said it's family, like it's a joke. Like, I mean, they are so loud. And so, um, you know, I kind of got that from other areas where like, it's not okay. And then the world kind of tells us as women, like sh sh we don't want a, a loud, you know, boisterous woman that's not appealing. Um, so I really did internalize that whole message of it's not okay to assert yourself. Um, and I really needed to, to hear that my presence mattered um, because I truly developed a belief system that it didn't. So like nobody cared what I had to say. I didn't have anything valuable to say, you know, so it was, uh, it was a, a definitely a shake to the confidence. You know, I don't think as a five-year-old, I lack confidence. I actually think I was really confident as a five-year-old. Uh, that sort of slowly happened over time as I continued telling myself this same message. So, um, you know, as a type nine, like I said, it's really difficult for me to ask for what I want because I... I really feel like, like being needy just feels like a burden to someone else, you know? And so I don't want to be a burden to someone else, which a lot of these types actually have sort of that similar thinking. It's just the way they sort of, um, you know, approach it. So for me as a type nine, I often don't know what my own needs are, so I can't possibly ask for those. When I first started drinking more, it was actually around when, um, when I had my son and, my husband and I were kind of struggling with figuring out this new world of having children. And I was falling into all of the traps that most moms and women's women do. You know, we fall into the, we do it all. Um, then we get pissed off because we are doing it all. And then we get pissed off because nobody's even seeing that we're doing it all or appreciating that we're doing it all. And it's just this vicious cycle. And so there's a lot of anger and resentment that was behind that. And so when I learned to start, first of all, knowing what my needs were, because that was the first step. I had no idea what my needs were. So how on, on like this earth could I possibly ask my husband for that? How would I know how to do that if I don't know what the needs are? My husband will often ask me when I'm overwhelmed what I need. And so I've had to kind of teach him that that's not the time to ask me because I have no idea what I need when I'm overwhelmed. I might know before the event or I might know in hindsight what I needed and didn't get. But when I'm overwhelmed, I can't even tell you the next thing. Like I can't tell you the next thing. So, um, so, you know, I'll often like make a list beforehand. Like here's the things that I would like you to accomplish. <laughs> so that way I don't get to that space of overwhelm, but I have to do that before I get overwhelmed, if that makes sense. Um, so that was a huge part of just my own journey because I was like ignoring some of the anger. Nines like to fall asleep to anger. I was ignoring a lot of the anger that I was experiencing towards my husband and just the life that I had. I mean, it was a hard, it felt like a really hard life and I felt like a victim. And so when I started to get out of the victim mentality and take some of the power back and really start to ask for what I want, it turns out you get what you want when you ask for it. Uh, how interesting, you know, so I, I, that just like, that's not just in my relationship with my husband. That's everywhere. Like I just started asking for what I needed or saying what I thought in this, in the scenario, do you want to go to this concert? No, I do not. Thank you for the invitation. Wow. Like that was huge for me. So, you know, we've talked to these nine types. Obviously all of these wounds are, are tough. I think that's part of the inner child that we need to heal for sure. 
Um, and like I said, I think that we're not meant to do this alone. So I think finding somebody that can help, you know, navigate you through this, but you know, it's been almost eight years for me of navigating through sort of healing and I'm still doing it, you know, I've come a long way and I'm still doing it. So you may find that it's not just about, oh, I'm just not going to drink. If you decide to take a break from alcohol or you decide to quit altogether, um, it's a lot deeper than that. Like if you really want to be successful in this journey, you're going to have to dig in deep and it's going to take some time and energy for sure. And probably some money because I had to pay a lot of people to help me, um, which I'm 100% fine with. Like I will pay for that all day long. Um, I'd rather do that than get some new stupid purse that I don't even care about. Um, so keep that in mind that it, it is definitely a journey. Um, and I do think there's a lot of healing that has to go on. You didn't just come out of the womb drinking bottles of wine to numb the life that you created like that is not how you started so let's uh let's heal you know how how you got from from there to where you are today let's heal some of those things um and gosh it just really feels like love to ourselves to be able to to be on this journey and to be able to heal um so that's it for this week i know this is sort of a deep subject, but I think it's really needed, um, especially for women. Like I said, I don't know a single woman who wouldn't agree that there's some healing that needs to, to be done for her. Um, same with men, but like I said, I think we have different, um, different wounds that we kind of carry with us for sure. Um, just based on how we've been socialized. So have a good week. Hopefully next week I'll have some sort of a really light and airy topic. Although I don't really think that's how I do things. Um, but maybe a more fun topic. I don't know. We'll see. I'll have to look at my schedule and see what's what's popping up there um, from a humor perspective. Um, I have been talking a lot about humor and how I think humor is very healing, as long as you're not using it to avoid the things that you're, you know, needing to tackle. But yeah, I do think humor is a, is a part of my own uh, healing, uh, my own inner child for sure. So have a good week. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you can be reminded of new episodes. This is not intended to be medical advice. This is for gray area drinkers that are wanting to evaluate their relationship with alcohol and cut back or quit altogether. If alcohol isn't ruining your life, but it's certainly not making it any better, you're in the right place.